Turn with me to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth, chapter 1, the first seven verses this morning. We begin a study of this little book. It's a very brief book. It's a Hebrew short story. It's only four little chapters. So it's my intention to make this somewhat of an Advent study, though I know Advent doesn't really begin till next Sunday. I also know that I can use the extra Sunday to start this week. And then if we don't make it to the end by Advent, it'll be our New Year's study. And hopefully it won't be next year's Advent study still. We'll see how it goes. I suspect many of you are quite familiar with the book of Ruth. It's one of the most delightful stories in the Bible. Eventually it becomes a love story about the relationship between Ruth and Boaz. But it's much more than just a love story. It appears to have been written in defense of David's kingship, perhaps an apologetic for his, uh, the presence of Gentiles in his kingdom. But it's even more than a book about David, the king. It's a book about the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the ultimate son of David, whose lineage is traced here. He's the ultimate kinsman redeemer, who is... Uh, foreshadowed by Boaz in this story. He is the one who brings full salvation, indeed salvation to the Gentiles, for Ruth, after all, is a Gentile. <clears throat> so this book is easy to read, but it's profound in the layers of truth that it uh, sets before us, and I hope that we can unpack some of that without taking away the joy and the delight in just reading this wonderful story from God's Word. So let's get started looking at the first seven verses this morning, which are largely about the uh, setting in which, out of which the book develops. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. <clears throat> in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. This man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian, they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malan and Kilian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. And we'll end there. There are two truths that I want us to see in this first little section, the setting and the beginning of this uh, story. The first truth is this, that ignoring God's word invites trouble. Ignoring God's word invites trouble. Last year, after the 9-11 disaster struck in this country, and the agonizing question, why, went up to heaven, there seems to be no, seemed to be no shortage of people who assumed that they could tell the whole nation why let this happen. 
mostly their simplistic condemnations of the country only added insult to injury, in my opinion. It's always wise to be careful before you presume to know why trouble comes in somebody else's life. But always to remember Job's friends who were so long. And yet at the same time, God's word has much to say about trouble and why he allows it and why he brings it. And frankly, we cannot avoid the reality that ignoring God's word invites trouble. This is an account of great trouble coming on a family. A famine in the promised land that got so bad that it caused a man to pick up his family and move out of the land of promise to another country. Then the death of that husband and father, which left Naomi a single mother in a strange land. And then the death of both of her sons, which left her and her two daughters-in-law alone. Now there's a mystery about why God allowed all of these things that happened to Naomi, her family. In some ways, Naomi is like Job. Suddenly trouble comes, seemingly from, from nowhere. The difference is that as we read it, uh, we're not, it's not like Job where we are told what's going on. Job's a righteous man, and God is proving that in regard to him. But we're not told that concerning Naomi. In Naomi's case, we're left to wonder, is Naomi a righteous woman who is suffering because of her righteousness? Or is Naomi suffering because of bad decisions and moral lapses? Well, as I read books about this and listen to other uh, uh, to, to scholars about this, so they're deeply divided. Some want to point to the poor choices that were made. And others chastise, especially the ancient Jewish scholars, who laid the blame at Elimelech's feet. Some go so far as to say that, that they, they villainize Elimelech. So, so how are we to see these events? What do we do? We have to make something of this text. Are these terrible tragedies that befell the righteous Naomi? Or are they examples of God's chastening? Well, I'm not the judge. And this isn't judgment day. Important thing to always remember when you're talking about somebody else's trouble. But at the same time, we never escape the requirement to bring everything under the scrutiny of the Word of God. And when we look at Elimelech and Naomi's uh, 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 life, and we set it against the standard of the Word of God, we have to say there are some terrible deficiencies. Though we cannot think that we could explain why God did everything and account one for one all of their trouble to failures in their life, Nonetheless, we cannot escape the need to at least conclude that ignoring God's word invites trouble. Now, the key to this uh, indication for disregard for God's word is found in the identification of this story with the book of Judges, the time of the Judges. We see that right at the beginning. In the days when the Judges ruled, there was a famine, etc., etc., and the story begins. Now, we know quite a bit about the days of the judges and what they were like. We have a whole book in the Bible called Judges. Before, God, before God's people entered the promised land, God, uh, through Moses in the book of Deuteronomy largely, set before them 
some explicit commands that they should walk in his ways. And as they did, they would know his blessing. He would bless them in the city, and he'd bless them in the country, and he blessed their fields, and he blessed their flocks, he'd bless their crops, he'd bless them and bless them and bless them. But if they turned away, and, and turned away from him and walked opposed to him and did not trust him and did not do what he said, he would curse them. He would curse them in the city, he would curse them in the country, he would curse their fields and their flocks, their herds and their crops. God set that clearly before his people before they entered the promised land. And so they entered and they conquered the land. And that generation passed, the generation of Joshua. And as soon as that first generation passed, Israel forgot all about God's command. And that forgetting, that next generation, and for many generations, was the time of the judges. Those days are described for us in no uncertain terms in the book of Judges. It was a time of moral anarchy. It was a time of covenant defection. The situation is poignantly summarized in the very last, book, last verse of the book of Judges, which probably is just across the page from where Ruth begins. Look at that last verse. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Or as the older translations say, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That was characteristic of the time of the judges. Everyone did their own thing. And so just as God had promised, he repeatedly brought trouble on them. The surrounding nations suddenly overran them, the Midianites and the Moabites and many others. They lived under tyranny for years, for decades, and then God would... And, 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 and they would suffer famine, they would suffer loss, their fields would be burned, their flocks would be raided, and God brought on them the exact covenant curses that he had outlined in the end of the book of Deuteronomy. So what were they to do? When they found themselves in such trouble, what were they to do? Well, they were to repent and turn around. That's what God had told them, and cry out to God for mercy. And when they did, God, who was full of compassion, delivered them. Time and time again he delivered them. He did so by raising up these judges, these mighty men and women who, who led them out of the trouble. You know some of their names. There's Gideon and there's Samson and there's Deborah and many more of the judges. That was the terrible pattern of the day of judges. Everybody doing whatever was right in his own eyes. God bringing chastening on them for their ignoring and disregard for his word. Then crying out to mercy and God raising up someone to deliver him. And again and again, it went in that cycle through those days. Verse 1 tells us that's the setting of this book. So the question is, where were Elimelech and Naomi in all of that? Were Elimelech and Naomi just like everyone else, doing their own thing? Or were Elimelech and Naomi like Job? One of the few righteous ones who faithfully trusted and obeyed the Lord no matter what. No. That's exactly what they did not do. That's what they didn't do. That's what they failed to do. For example, when famine came, God had promised that he would bring such trouble when his people turned around. And what did they do? They packed up and left. 
Though they lived in Bethlehem, the word means house of bread. When the famine come, came, they did not wait upon the Lord who had promised to bless them in their faithfulness, in their crops, in their fields, and, their, and, and to curse them for their unfaithfulness. No, they didn't wait on the Lord. They packed up and moved to Moab. Moab, one of the surrounding nations that had hassled them during the days of the judges. Moab, a pagan place outside the land of promise. Matthew Henry asked how this could possibly have been justified. Listen to his comment. It is evidence of a discontented, distrustful, unstable spirit to be weary of the place in which God has set us and to be alienated immediately whenever we meet with any uneasiness or inconvenience in it. But that's exactly what they did. It seemed right in their own eyes. Or another example, when their sons were born, what did they do? Back in Deuteronomy, God had given very clear commands concerning the training of children. You're to talk about the Lord all the time. When you walk down the road, when you sit down, when you rise up, always hold before the Lord, before your children the Lord. You to display the word of the Lord prominently. Write it up on your walls. Put it over the door where the kids can see it. Write it on their hearts. But all we know of Elimelech and Naomi's concern for their children is found in the names that they gave him. They named them Malan and Killian. Nice names, they kind of rhyme. But back in those days when names were so important, when names were not just identity tags like they are now, but when names were carefully chosen to, to, to tell of your place in the world, what do these names mean, Malan and Killian? Well, it, it, it's hard to tell exactly. The Hebrew scholars struggled to try to figure out what the Hebrew wor root words might be. The only place they really find these names is in the ancient Ugaritic language. Because these are old Canaanite names. Names that the parents picked up from the pagans around them. They're just doing their own thing. Fit in with their culture. Another example, the sons grew up. And when the sons grew up and were ready to marry, what happened? You remember from our study of Genesis, the great lengths to which Abraham went to find a son for his, uh, to find a wife for his son Isaac. He sent a servant to a far country, hundreds and hundreds of miles away. And he gave his servant all kinds of supplies, and he said to his servant, absolutely under no conditions will my son marry one of the pagan women around here. You go find him a wife. Do not let him marry one of these pagan girls. So what did Elimelech and Naomi do? Did they send back to Bethlehem and Judah to look for a faithful, godly wife for their sons? wasn't that far away. It wasn't hundreds of miles away like it was for Abraham. It was about 50 miles. No. Their sons just married Moabite girls. Pagan wives who worshipped the god Shemesh. Now some have argued and said, well, in that passage we read this morning, it listed those seven nations. Moabites were not one of the seven nations. Let me tell you, in Deuteronomy 23, it says that the Moabites will not even be allowed in the sanctuary. 
And Ezra and Nehemiah later clearly understood that to mean you do not marry with, intermarry with the Moabites any more than you intermarry with the Canaanites or the Jebusites or the Hittites or any of the rest of them. But Orpah and Ruth were nice local girls. Perhaps they were pretty. Perhaps from good homes. And like everyone else, Elimelech and Naomi were doing whatever they pleased completely disregarding those commands from the Lord. You see how ironic it is that Elimelech, whose name means God is my king, lived as if God's not a factor in his life, as if God controlled nothing and it didn't matter about the Lord. In fact, in these first five verses where many life choices are made, who you marry, where you live, how you raise your children, God is never mentioned except as his name is embedded in the name of Elimelech, who seems to have forgotten the meaning of his name. So what happened to this family? They left Bethlehem and moved to Moab to save their lives because the famine was so strong. But in fact, in Moab, they lost their lives. The father... Both sons left three widows. Ignoring God's word invites trouble. Well, we don't know all we wish we knew about that, but this we know. Ignoring God's word invites trouble. But isn't that exactly what we tend to do too? Isn't that our temptation in times of struggle? We don't want to persevere either. We don't want to wait upon the Lord and humble ourselves and pray and be patient and put our hope in him and be content with whatever he gives us, trusting in his grace. We don't want to search the scriptures and try to figure out the difficult things so that we'll understand and know what to do to be faithful. We'd rather just be blissfully ignorant and do whatever we feel like doing. We just want what we want. We're determined to be in control. If we don't have uh, what we want, if God won't give us what we want, we'll take it. God won't do what won't do what we want. We'll do it ourselves anyway. Aren't we just like the days of the judges? Just like what we see in Elimelech and Naomi? Everyone does his own thing. And driven by such an attitude, we have seen lives destroyed. We've seen churches split. We've seen marriages broken. We've seen children destroyed. We've seen friends turned into enemies. We've seen communities polarized. Because ignoring God's word invites trouble. It just does. So what does Naomi do now? She's in a mess. Sitting in a foreign country with two widowed daughters-in-law. What does she do? What do we do? That brings us to our second point. Return to the place of God's promise. 
return to the place of God's promise. The, the newest computer operating systems have a wonderful new feature that you may not know about. You know, sometimes when you're messing with the computer and you're trying to add things and you're deleting this and you're doing things, sometimes you mess things up. I'll speak for myself. Sometimes I mess things up. And you can get things so messed up that you don't even know what you did to mess it up. Most operating systems have an interesting little feature, a restore feature that allows you to go back to the place where things were when they all worked. Get rid of all that you did. Go back and start over. Isn't that a wonderful feature? That's grace. <laughs> That's kind of what Naomi needs to do, though. To return to the place where things were like they were supposed to be. The place of God's covenant promises. You see, in spite of the terrible things that took place during the time of the judges, God was never finished with Israel. He had redeemed them and claimed them as his own. He had brought them out of Egypt through the Red Sea. He had preserved them for 40 years in the wilderness. He had brought them into the promised land. And now, though he chastened them severely when they went astray, he also restored them when they cried out for help. And sure enough, in verse 6, we read that Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. That's an interesting statement. It literally says, Naomi heard in Moab that God had visited his people. Remember we talked about that just last week. This was Joseph's prayer and promise to his family. Don't bury my bones. God will visit you and take you out of this place, and you take me with you. And God did that. And now, once again, God visits his people with blessing in the form of an end of the famine, bringing prosperity upon them in the land of Israel. Isn't it interesting? Did you notice the difference in this description from the way we would put it? We would say something like, and the, and the weather broke, and the rain came, and, 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 and the whole uh, agricultural picture was turned around. Or we would say, there's been an upturn in the economy and things are looking better now. Or perhaps we'd say, the threat of terrorism went away and they lived in peace and prosperity again. But our text understands it right. God visited his people. That's how God works through those secondary things. But God's the one who's working. God was not finished with Israel. And neither was he finished with Naomi and with Ruth. Oh, Naomi's life will never be the same. She will always bear the scars of these days. She won't suddenly have her husband back. She won't suddenly have her sons back. One daughter-in-law at least is gone forever. By the way, that's why we don't sin casually and say, Oh, God will forgive me. Yes, he probably will. But if in your drunken stupor you get in an accident and lose your legs, he won't give you your legs back. You will live out your life with the scars of your sin. But God's not finished with Naomi. 
And this book will unfold God's unexpected blessing on her, that blessing which will extend even to having the descendant who becomes the king of Israel, God's anointed one, King David. Even beyond that, to having the descendant who will name Jesus, who will save his people from their sins. Oh, God's not done with Naomi. He has wonderful things in store. The problem is right now, Naomi is not where God is visiting his people. He's keeping his promises according to his ancient covenant with those who have come into the land of Canaan and have waited upon him, have repented and turned back to him and called upon him, and he's visiting them with blessing and prosperity. But Naomi is sitting in Moab. Having chosen not to wait upon the Lord, In Bethlehem, Naomi sits there and hears about God's visitation, but she's not a part of it. She reminds me of the prodigal son. When everything finally ran out, he sits in a far country feeding pigs and wishing he had as good a food as the pigs. And he sits there and he says, what am I doing here? In my father's house, Everybody has enough to eat. And here I sit hungry. I need to get up and go home. And he did. And so God's work in Naomi begins with the difficult decision to get up and go home to the place of God's promise. And make no mistake, that was a difficult decision. You know, Elimelech and Naomi went over to Moab just for a temporary reprieve because there was food there and there wasn't food at home. But they've been there 10 years now. You put down roots in 10 years, it's harder to move after 10 years later. And then there's the family to face back in Bethlehem. The fact that this family of Elimelech is called The Ephrathites, in verse 2, seems to suggest that they were from an old prominent clan in Bethlehem. They were uh, some of the aristocratic family in Bethlehem. Later we find out that uh, Naomi still owned property back there. when, When Naomi returns, we find out it's quite a thing for her. It's not like just nobody coming home. It's Naomi that came home, who we all know. Oh, but here comes Naomi. The once prominent Naomi, with no husband, with no sons, penniless, and with a pagan daughter-in-law. What about all their dreams of how much better it was going to be in Moab? She now comes home with her tail between her legs. Difficult. But you see, her only hope was to return to the place of God's promises. How painfully she had learned that there's no hope anywhere else. So like the prodigal son, she swallowed her pride and went home. Not because it was a a sentimental, nostalgic, comfortable place to go. But because it was the place of God's promise, no matter how uncomfortable it might be to go there. And folks, that's still what God requires of his people. Remember the indictment in Revelation 2 when the Lord says to the church at Ephesus, I have this against you, you have left your first love. 
So what are they to do about their cold, callous hearts? Well, the Lord continues, remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. In other words, go back. Return to the place of God's covenant blessing. I think that's what this text calls us to this morning. To return to the place of God's promise. What's that mean in practice? It's perhaps different for everyone. For some it may mean literally going home. Seeking reconciliation with your parents and with your family. For some it may mean returning to an estranged spouse. Humbling yourself and determining that you'll make this marriage work. For others, it may mean returning to a church what you left in a huff, where you took offense at something and refused to submit to the body. You need to go back and make that right, even if it wasn't all your fault. For others, it means just coming clean with the Lord, to face and confess and abandon the sin that you've been clinging to. But for everyone, in whatever situation, it means to return in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. For God's covenant promises are no longer tied to his people remaining in that land of Canaan, no longer tied to this piece of real estate in the Middle East. God's covenant promises are tied to being in Christ. Jesus exhorts us, abide in me and bear fruit, for without me you can do nothing. And he warns us, if you do not abide in me, You'd be thrown away as a branch and tied up and burned. The place of God's promise is not a land, it's a person. Return to Jesus, in whom are all God's promised blessings. Oh, Naomi could have stayed in Moab, licking her wounds and feeling sorry for herself feeling justified that it was just not possible to go back home. And this book would have never been written. And she would have died bitter and alone. And she would never have known the joy of the grandchild that she eventually held. And she would never have heard, we would never have heard anything about her. She wouldn't be in the line of promise, the great-great-great-grandmother of David and the, the great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus. We would never have heard... Of course, that's not possible because God's not finished with Naomi. He has turned his gracious love toward her, and he is about to restore her beyond her wildest imagination. But she couldn't see all that yet. Like you and me, all she could see was the hard, unbending necessity that I need to return to the place of God's promise. And so with faith, with a very faltering faith, as we'll see next time, we read in the last verse that Naomi left the place she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to Judah. That's what I call you to this morning. However that might apply to you. Years ago, Andre Crouch said it pretty well in one of his songs. He said, take me back. Let's go back.
to the place where I first received you. Take me back. Lord, I want to go back where I first believed. I feel so far from you, Lord. Still I hear you calling me. These simple things that I once knew, the memories of drawing near. I must come back. Lord, I've been blessed, but my soul's not satisfied. Renew my faith. Restore my joy. Dry my weeping eyes. I tried so hard to make it all alone. I need your help just to make it home. Take me back. Take me back to the place where I first received you. Take me back. I want to go back where I first believed. What's he saying? Return to the place of God's promise. This book is going to be rich, I think, as it unfolds for us a little of God's unfathomable, gracious plan of salvation. His plan to bring a Savior into the world through this love story that we're going to see as this progresses. This book is also going to be rich, though, in its ordinariness, if that's a word. Here are people who live largely like we live. There are no new divine revelations in the book of Ruth. There's only God's word given through Moses, which they're expected to know, remember, and obey. Here God doesn't work through miracles and signs and wonders. We don't see any of that. We see him working through secondary causes, human events, political events, the same kinds of things that how we see God work today. Oh, but for all its ordinariness, the lessons seem only more profound, for they're written for people just like us. And this morning we have a beginning of those things, two things. Ignoring God's word invites trouble. So secondly, it's time to return to the place of God's promise. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And I pray that as we study this book together that we would delight in it, delight in the beautiful literature, the wonderful story that's real historical events, and especially, Lord, in the unfolding of your salvation plan. Thank you for the text this morning. Lord, it's not our desire to to somehow sit in judgment of Elimelech and Naomi, but we do want to see and appreciate how, in spite of their failures, in spite of their faithlessness, in spite of their mistakes, your grace was greater For, Lord, we need to know that grace in our life. So mold us, renew us by the same grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.